quite a bit of ground here. When I was a kid, I felt invincible. Much like these kids here probably feel. <laughs> you know, I never got sore. I never had aches. I never had pains. I couldn't comprehend the concept of burnout. I remember thinking as a kid, watching my dad and other adults, and they would say things like, I'm tired now. I can't play or something. And I'd go, what do you mean? Like, how is that possible? How, how, how can you not play right now? <laughs> like, like, how are you so tired that you, you know, what, what were you doing all day that you're so tired that you can't do the, the, the thing you were made to do? which I thought was play, right? I mean, when you're a kid, you're, you, you think your purpose in life is to play and to, and I guess at that, at that point in time it is, you know, because in play you learn and you grow and stuff, but I couldn't comprehend this idea of being too tired or, or not having enough energy or, or burning out. Kids don't burn out, right? They just go and go and go and go and they never stop. But one day you wake up and your knees hurt, and your elbows are creaky, like I can crack my elbow somehow now. Like every time I do this, it cracks. Um, and I knew I was getting older and needed to slow down and maybe take more breaks when one day I ate uh, a McDonald's Big Mac. And so shortly after, I like my joints began to hurt. <laughs> I could feel the inflammation in my joints after eating a Big Mac and I knew this is weird. Because I used to eat a Big Mac and two cheeseburgers and 20 McNuggets and all, the whole deal. I'm not kidding. I used to eat all that. And shortly after, I would go to the gym and I would work out and I would be vascular and pumped and energetic. Now if I eat a Big Mac, I'm out. One Big Mac, I'm zonked. My joints hurt. I need a nap. As we age, we realize that we need rest. Life life is toiling life is is work sometimes we feel like it never ends god told adam he said by the sweat of your brow you will eat toil and hard work it's hard and your body breaks down and it hurts and you get mentally tired too you know like when i was younger i didn't i didn't get mentally i didn't get tired at all i was just a machine i guess but now i'm not and especially today with all the bad news we're hearing about vaccine mandates and this and that and it becomes exhausting it becomes exhausting and like that by the end of this week like yesterday i was just mentally tired just man i can't take it anymore i'm too tired i need rest my soul needs rest and my spirit needs to take a nap there's too much i'm burning out from everything People work themselves to the bone just to survive and we find ourselves crying out just for rest and those with little kids know what it is to not rest. You understand what it is to not get rest and, and what it means that you would give anything just to rest. And God offers us rest, but not any rest. He offers us eternal everlasting rest, but we cannot enter this rest as we'll see in our passage this morning if there's unbelief in our hearts. Unbelief is the issue. Sin is an issue as well, but all sin flows out of a heart of unbelief. So open your Bibles then, if you would, with me to Hebrews chapter 3. 
And uh, I want to read a couple of verses here, starting at verse 7 down to 11. It says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So in this passage this morning, the author of Hebrews is quoting and expositing, explaining uh, Psalm chapter 95, verses 7 to 11, which is sort of interesting because this is Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 11. <laughs> but anyways, that's beyond the point. Psalm 95 is a warning to the Israelites to not make the same mistakes that their forefathers had made. You know, sometimes I find myself making the same mistakes my father made. I'll say something to my kids and go, wow, where that, that sounds like my dad. <laughs> or I'll do something, an expression. You know, my dad always does this thing. He used to always do this thing when I did something like stupid. He would look at me and just go. <laughs> and I do that. <laughs> my kids will do something that upsets me and I just go. I'm like, where, I, like I hate that. <laughs> like that. I'm like that. But so in this passage, this is a, a kind of a broader way of the, of the Holy Spirit telling the Israelites, hey, let's look at what your forefathers have done. Don't do that. The beginning of Psalm 95 encourages the reader to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, which you would think this is a very joyous and exuberant psalm. But by the time you get down to verse 7, things take a, take a turn. Verse 7 of Psalm 95 is where the author of Hebrews begins quoting. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, it's important to remember, as I tell you every week, that the original readers of the, the book of Hebrews were first century Jews. So the point here is to bring them to remembrance that our, uh, their forefathers went astray in the wilderness wandering, and, and God didn't let them enter the promised land. So don't make the same mistake they did. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And I don't know about you, but my memory is very selective. Uh, I think a lot. I think that's just a male thing. <laughs> I think women tend to have a better uh, ability to pay attention to details and conversation. Um, but what? Come on! It's yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe it's just an maybe it's just an Allen problem then I don't know, but I tend to have a selective listening and memory. So when I go to the grocery store, pick something up uh, to eat or whatever, my wife has to send me with a very detailed list. It has to be, it has to be literal, or else I will miss it. Like you can't, she can't, uh, she can't assume I'll just get it because <laughs> I won't. I'll miss it. And I end up checking and even double checking that list. And, and even sometimes even still I overlook something. If I need to be reminded about such a trivial thing as like to get two packs of eggs instead of one. How much more do I need a reminder about the things pertaining to salvation? How much more do we need to be reminded about the important things in life? God's people needed constant and need still constant reminders of the past 
to help us navigate the present. This is why the Bible is such a tremendously powerful book because it's a reminder, a lot of, a lot of it is a reminder of the past so that we can, we can navigate the present. And that's, a, a, I, think, I think, a big reason why today we're in the mess we're in in this country is because we don't remember the past. And if someone reminds us of the past, we don't allow that to help us navigate the present. If someone reminds us of the past, we say, well, that was then, this is now, or you're a conspiracy theorist. Which, by the way, most conspiracy theories nowadays just turn out to be spoiler alerts anyways. So, I think Chris Skye said that, I forget, I heard it somewhere. But it's true! So don't neglect the past. Know the past. Know it well so that you can navigate the present. This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Remember your forefathers. Remember what they did. Remember them and do not harden your hearts like they did. Why do you think God gave us the Bible? Because God never changes. How he worked in the past is how he'll work in the present and how he'll work in the future. So, the author of Hebrews writes this portion to remind us to remember. Remember your ancestors. Remember your forefathers. And take care to not fall into the same traps that they fell into. Take care not to have a heart full of unbelief as they did. And it was because of unbelief that the Israelites went astray. And and that's the reason they couldn't enter the promised land. It was unbelief. And unbelief is still the reason people miss out on entering into God's eternal rest. Let's go ahead and read Hebrews 3, verses 12 to 19. Take care, brothers, lest, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We must be very, very careful and very, very mindful about our own hearts. The Bible tells us here to take care lest we have an evil, unbelieving heart. To take care means to watch carefully, to be skeptical. This isn't just some generic thing being said here. We aren't told to casually, you know, just like, hey, just keep an eye on this thing. Your heart, just be careful about it. Just keep an eye. No, no, no. We're being told to watch our hearts like a watchman watches for an enemy. Like, like a king tells the watchman, go onto the wall and look out and watch for an enemy. That's how we're being told to watch our own hearts. We're, we're being told to be actively skeptical about our own hearts, to take care, to watch. We, ha- we must never, never trust our own hearts. Our hearts are not our friends. And I'm not talking about the piece of meat in your chest that pumps blood through your body. (laughs) 
That's not what I'm talking about. That is your friend. You want to take care of that, obviously. I'm talking about your, um, the seat of uh, your, your it's basically sort of your mind. Your, 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 um, where your emotions come from, you know, you don't want to trust that. If anybody tells you to follow your heart, you've heard that, right? Just follow your heart. Don't do that. <laughs> That's very, very, I don't want to be mean, but it's not a good idea. <laughs> Put it that way. Don't follow your heart. Don't listen to that advice. Following your heart is a pagan, secular idea. The Bible tells you the opposite. The Bible tells you watch out for your heart because it's deceitful. Your heart will deceive you. Our hearts are slick and sly. In your heart may be deceiving you to fall away from the living God. Our hearts can always justify our own actions. Well, you know, you make excuses for your own sin and somebody else does it, then it's bad. But if you do it, you, you justify it. That's your heart deceiving you. So in this case, the Holy Spirit tells us instead to exhort one another every day. The word exhort in the New Testament is translated a bunch of different ways, appeal, urge, encourage, beg, comfort. But the point is clear because our hearts are so deceitful, we need to constantly be exhorting one another, encouraging one another, comforting, lifting each other up. We need a, a, somebody else in our life to look, look out for us and and when they see something in our lives, our hearts being deceitful, come and encourage and exhort us and say, hey, you're listening to your heart. Stop. <laughs> you know, this is what the Word of God says. Do that instead. The Bible tells us we have come to share in Christ. You, in, in, you can't be a Christian alone because your heart is too weak. You, you need, we need each other because we have come to share in Christ. How can you share in Christ by yourself? You can't. We need to hold to the original confession together. Notice the author of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, plural. It presupposes that Christianity is being lived out in the context of a family, of a church, his household, and together we stand, but together we can also fall, as we see in the Israelites' uh, wilderness wandering, if we don't take care to watch and to exhort one another in the truth. Today, he says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's he referring to here? What rebellion? Well, he's talking about the wilderness wandering when, when the people of Israel left Egypt and they ended up in the wilderness. The, as, you, as some of you know, they were slaves, the people of Israel, for 400 years. They were put to hard labor, persecuted mercilessly. You know, there was a time when the Pharaoh of the land there uh, decreed every baby boy who was a Hebrew was to be thrown into the Nile River and destroyed. Uh, because he was seeing the people of Israel grow and he's saying, hey, these people might uh, uh, encroach on my political um, power. They're getting too big. And so he says, destroy the baby boys so that I can retain my political power. But there was one baby boy who was spared from the Nile River. He was Moses, chosen by God to deliver the people out of slavery. And many of us know the story how through Moses, God delivered the Jews with a mighty hand and awesome, miraculous signs. Yet, we're told it was that generation, the generation that saw the miracles, who were saved from slavery, who heard the word of God. We're told that generation was the one that rebelled. 
It was the first generation out of Egypt, which Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 35 tells us, says this about, it says, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Listen to the words that the Lord tells us. So that generation that, that was taken out of Egypt, it was that generation, the first one, he calls them evil. That evil generation. They will not see the land that I promised because they were evil. They had an unbelieving heart. Even though they've seen the miracles, they were eyewitness testimonies to God's amazing salvation. These were the ones that were told rebelled. Uh, do you understand now why the Holy Spirit's warning us here to take care, to, to be careful? The message was clear for the first century Jews. Hey, your forefathers, they fell into rebellion. They were an evil generation after they were supernaturally saved out of Egypt. So we need to take great care because the salvation we have in Christ is greater than that that they experienced. That evil generation all fell in the wilderness together because... They had an evil, unbelieving heart. So together we must all stand exhorting and comforting one another. The core issue of the Israelites and why they fell in the wilderness was unbelief. Imagine that. Moses goes to get the Ten Commandments and he comes down and they've already made an idol. That might be a bit confusing, you know, like how could they have had unbelief? They saw the plagues God sent on Egypt. Ten plagues that they saw with their own eyes only touched the Egyptians. Didn't touch them, only the Egyptians. They saw that. Then they saw God split the sea in half and allow them to walk on dry land. And then they saw God take that same sea and put it back upon the Egyptians and destroy all them. Then they saw God rain bread from heaven. Okay, so they could eat in the desert then they saw God thundering from Mount Sinai and they said, okay, we're not going. Moses, you go. Okay, we don't want to see the Lord. You can go and deal with that. Then they saw Moses' face literally glowing so, so bright they couldn't even look that he had to put a veil on his face after he talked to God. They saw that. They saw all of this and more and yet they still rebelled and had evil hearts filled with unbelief. And God would not permit them to enter his rest, the promised land, for that reason. It wasn't because they grumbled. It wasn't because they necessarily sinned. It was because of the, the one sin from which all the others flowed, which was unbelief. The sin of the people revealed and made evident they had hearts filled with unbelief. The sin of the people um, was heinous because of their unbelief. And let this be a cautionary story for us as the church. We cannot enter God's true rest with hearts filled with unbelief. Maybe you're struggling in an area of sin. You probably are because you're a sinner. <laughs> it's probably because there's an area of unbelief that the Lord needs to work out in your, in, in your life. The rest of the promised land for that first generation of the Israelites, that rest that God was going to give them there was only a shadow in the type of God's eternal rest we have in Jesus Christ. But what is true in both instances in the substance of all of this is that without faith, 
it is impossible to enter God's rest. You cannot enter God's Sabbath rest with unbelief in your heart. So we need to take care, exhorting one another, building one another up in the faith. And being, you know, able to, and it's hard, I get it, man. It's hard when somebody comes to correct you or has a word in, uh, of, of, or they see a blind spot. And I get it, it's hard. It can be hard to receive that. I know it's hard. But um, we, need to, we need to love each other enough to be able to do that and not become offended or take it personally. Um, but if you do, if you are going to correct someone, do it out of love. Like make sure you actually love them first <laughs> and then go correct them. Don't just see something and say, wow, that person's being really dumb. I better go fix that. That's not, the, that's, not, that's not the attitude you need to have. The attitude you need to have is, okay, I care for this person. I love this person. I see a blind spot. I see something that's, that's, that might harm them. I want to go and help them. So let that... First, if you're going to do that, at least come at it from that perspective, okay? So, anyways, let's go ahead and read uh, Hebrews chapter 4 as we continue through these passages here. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 8. 1 to 8, sorry. 1 all the way to 8, not 1, 2, and 8. I'm confusing myself. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Okay, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, so, if you're confused, don't worry about it. We're going to work this out. I remember reading that passage first. First time I read that, I'm going, what is he talking about? Let's go through this here. Hope, and I hope I can help you understand. So, here we have another warning. He says, let us fear. The promise of entering the rest of God, he says, still stands. He has not withdrawn the promise. So he says, therefore, since he has not withdrawn the promise of entering his rest, he says, let us fear before God. So sometimes this idea of fearing God, it, it gets a bad rap, okay? It gets a bad rap. What does it mean? Well, honestly, I don't think it's that confusing. Uh, I, I don't want to complicate this because I don't think it is complicated. I think it just means what it says. I think to fear God is to understand. Entering his rest is not a small thing. To fear God is to understand. It's a heavy and serious thing. It's something we don't wink at. Something we don't take uh, lightly. As a matter of fact, it's the most serious thing in the whole universe. So we fear, we fear before the Lord because it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's a consuming fire. We've received the good news... Verse 2 tells us, just as they have, albeit the good news they received, he's talking about Israel now, was not, a full and, uh, not as full and complete as ours. They nonetheless received it just as we did. The Israelites in the wilderness, they encountered the Son of God all throughout the Exodus story and in the wilderness. 
Uh, the Exodus all pointed toward and prefigured the salvation of Jesus Christ, that God would enter uh, uh, time and space and, and save his people. So the Israelites received the gospel and they were saved from Egypt by the same Jesus that saves us from our enemy sin and death. Jude 1.5 says exactly what Hebrews 3 says. Jude 1.5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now some translations will say uh, uh, the Lord who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. Uh, the ESV translation and others actually name Jesus. And the reason that they do that is because um, manuscripts have been discovered that were earlier than some others that actually named Jesus. It actually says Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt. And as we're doing Bible translation, we know the earlier manuscripts are, are, have, tend to be uh, the more reliable ones. Now, even if you take the translation of Lord, I mean, who's Lord? Jesus is Lord. So basically saying the same thing. Jesus saved them, and Jesus saves us. And they received the good news just as we did. And it tells us afterward, Jesus destroyed all those who, what? Did not believe. It, wasn't, it was because of their unbelief. It was because of their unbelief they did not enter God's rest. And it's only we who believe that enter his rest. But those who do not believe, it says, he has sworn in his wrath that they will not enter my rest. Although God's works were finished from, the, from before the foundation of the world. So that statement comes after that. And I found that a little, a little bit strange. Why even mention that in, the, in, in, this, in this passage here? Although God's works were finished before the foundation of the world. So God didn't even make the world yet and, it, and his works were finished. What does that mean? In verse 4, the author of Hebrews jumps from Psalm 95 and now he goes to Genesis 2.2. He says, it's said somewhere like this. It says, on the seventh day, God rested. So Genesis 2.2 says, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Genesis chapters 1 to 3 are shrouded in controversy and confusion. Now, if you've never read it, it can be incredibly confusing. Genesis 1 gives us a peek into God creating the whole physical realm. Now, if I told you I had a book that explains how God created all things, would you be interested in reading it? Of course. Of course. Of course you'd want to read it. Just the thought of peeking into the mystery of creation is exhilarating enough. Like, I can, I can look into that just a little bit. But what we find in Genesis 1 is not what we would expect. What we find in Genesis 1 is a pattern broken up into six days. Now, this pattern is relatively simple. It's so simple a child can understand it. You know, I read with my children, the children's Bibles and creation, and it's day one, day two, day three, this is created, and that is created, and they get it. Oh, six days, each day something happened. Okay, simple enough. Day one, God creates light, then the, day two, the heavens, etc., etc. And it's so simple that a lot of scientists and, and others will scoff at Genesis 1. Like, there's no way the universe was created in six days. That's just too simple. Now, whatever you believe about Genesis 1, there's no doubt 
that as you really look into it, I mean, the first time I read Genesis 1, it was like, oh, that's a little bit anticlimactic. You know, I kind of expected something more. I don't know what I expected, but that was not really what I, what I expected the creation of the universe to look like. <laughs> But the more you read it, if you actually start to... It's like it's like a, a movie, right? You watch it, that wasn't that good. But then you watch it again and go, oh, actually, it's not that bad. And then you watch it again and go, oh, my goodness, this is deep. And then you keep watching it, and it's just deeper and deeper and deep. This is what Genesis 1 is like. The first reading, you go, ah, that's a, that's a little strange. But as you actually go deeper and deeper and reread it and reread it, it just becomes a, a, a well that just never ends and riches that are just the depths of which cannot be... Um, extracted in, in a lifetime. So, as you do this and you realize this, Genesis 1 is a literary masterpiece. If you studied it for any serious amount of time, you'll understand how measureless this, this thing is. It's literally the foundation of the rest of the Bible. Genesis 1 is really also the foundation of all of history. It's so much more than just this story about creation. In many ways, it's the story of our history and God's purpose and God's plan. You might be thinking, what? How? Let me show you. Let me just point out something in Genesis 2, which is part of the same uh, story here. At this point, the heavens and the earth are complete. It's day 7 now. Days 1 through 6 all followed this pattern. After each day, the Bible tells us, and there was evening and there was morning. Every day ends with that statement. There was evening and there was morning. And then it goes to the next day. The story of creation is meticulously constructed it's it, it's a piece of literature not one word is wasted everything is intentional every word every phrase carries significant purpose so when you see a pattern break you need to pay attention because day seven breaks the pattern day seven ends in genesis 2 3 it ends like this it says so god blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it god rested from all the, his work that he had done in creation day seven has no end day seven is eternal there is no evening there is no morning this is what the author of hebrews is telling us here this is God's Sabbath rest. The Sabbath of Israel, right? He told them, keep the Sabbath, you know, keep it holy in the Ten Commandments. This Sabbath served as a reminder to the people of Israel and to us, God's true Sabbath was still coming. We, we, we're not there yet. The seventh day preached the gospel to the Israelites every week. It was a reminder to them that the toil and the hardships that they face on earth as a result of sin is not the final verdict. There is a day of rest. He commanded it to remind them that this life is not all that there is, that sin will not have the final say, that there is a final rest for the people of God. It's still available. God will bring it. And the gospel of God's rest was proclaimed even before the sin of Adam. Hebrews 4-5 connects Psalm 95 with Genesis 2-2. And he's painting this picture for us. It's a beautiful picture. And what he's really trying to tell us is this. The Sabbath rest that God offers his people was not found in the land where God was bringing the Israelites. It wasn't the land. It wasn't Canaan. The Sabbath of God is eternal. This is evident because he speaks through David. He tells us, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He appoints a certain day. It wasn't the day of Moses, right? Because he didn't enter. It wasn't the day of Joshua who led Israel into the promised land. 
it's today, it's the day of Christ, which is today. This is why he tells us, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When you place your faith in Christ, the kingdom of God comes within you. That's what Jesus says. Plainly, he said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heaven laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No prophet, no prophet ever said that. Only Jesus comes and says, I will give you rest. And he's alluding back to Genesis chapter 2, saying the rest, the Sabbath of God is me. It's not found anywhere else. No other rest. There's no other rest he could be describing. Rest for your souls, he says. Eternal rest, a day which never ends. And you might be thinking, Alan, you're stretching this a bit. I'm not. (laughs) Revelation 21 is pretty clear. Look at this. Revelation 21, 22 describes the seventh day, the eternal day. It says this. Pay careful attention to how uh, John describes this, what he sees. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Look at this, verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. There will be no night there. What is that implying? It's a day that never ends. On, the, on day seven, God rested from all his work he had done. If Joshua had given the people of Israel rest when he led them into the land, David would not have prophesied of another day to come, would he? No, he wouldn't have. God rested from all his works he had done. Before the foundation of the world, God's works were done. You can't enter God's true Sabbath rest with unbelief in your heart. We must believe, and by believing, rest from our works in the works of Christ. Look at this. This is amazing. This is, okay, this is the last chunk of scripture here, and then, and then I'm done. But he just ends this this. This portion just so powerfully verse 14 sorry verse 9 of Hebrews 4 so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest look at this has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and uh, of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the, of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are made naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There remains, he says, a Sabbath, for the, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And here's the key. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by the grace of God. We cannot attain the Sabbath rest of God through toiling and through work. We must rest from our works, as he did from his. 
And that's the pernicious lie. So many believe that there's something you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. If you are to enter God's rest, you must rest from your works. How in the world are you going to enter rest through work? This just doesn't make sense. It's on a pragmatic level. But then he says, let us strive to enter that rest <laughs> so, then, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So which is it? Have we entered into the rest or are we striving? Well, it's both. <laughs> Jesus gives us rest in our striving. That is a, when you grasp that, when you get that, that is powerful. Because even in the striving, even in the toil and hardships and disappointments of this life, he says, I will give you rest in that. You can have rest in that. That's a promise from God that is found nowhere else in the, in the, in the known universe. So take care not to fall then. For the word of God is sharp and active. It divides to the bone and the marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. We've circled back to where we began. <laughs> Don't trust your hearts. The word of God, on the other hand, is trustworthy. The word of God discerns the heart. You might say, how do I know if my heart's deceiving me, Alan? The word of God. That's what he tells us. That's how he finishes this passage here. He circles back to the beginning and he says, the word of God can cut and discern and diagnose your heart. So when you're like, I don't know if my heart's deceiving me, you go into the Word of God and it, it diagnoses you. It's a doctor. Here's, here's your heart. Here's where, where, where it's deceitful. And here's what the Lord says about it. It's a divine doctor. It discerns. It cuts. It does spiritual surgery. And the Holy Spirit does that as you trust him to open up the word to you nothing is hidden from his sight even those deceitful places in your heart even those things deep down in you that you're not aware of everything is laid bare before him who sees all you're, you're, he says you're naked you're exposed before him nothing is hidden so beg the Lord that by his word he would make known to you your weaknesses and, and be merciful and help you in those things so that you might become so that on that last day you might not be exposed with an evil, unbelieving heart. So that you might not make the same mistakes as your forefathers had made, which, which didn't enter the rest. It's a serious warning that you can't enter God's rest with unbelief. You, you, may, you may think you believe, but so did the Israelites. They all fell, so how can we be sure? Well, trust Him. Really trust Him. Rest from your works. That's one of the hardest things to do for me at least, is to rest from my works and to trust God to do it. Throw yourself upon His mercy and put no confidence in yourself. Have no confidence in yourself. None. Zero. And you might be thinking, Alan, that... How is that encouraging? Well, it's encouraging because you don't have to have confidence in yourself. It takes all the pressure off you and puts it onto God. Who can handle it? When I'm feeling anxious and worried, what God, tell, what God tells me to do is give it to Him. So when you don't give it to Him, what you're doing is you're stealing from God what is His. Your worries, your anxiety, your problems are His property. Don't steal it from Him. 
Give it, give him his property. Sometimes I pray like that. I say, Lord, I'm worried. Take what is yours off of me. This isn't mine. This is this belongs to you. This is your property. It's inappropriate that I have it. Please take it. Here, have it. And every time it comes again, give it back. Give it back. Give it back. It's his. Put no confidence in yourself. Put all your confidence in him. Because he says, come to me, all who are heavy and laden and burdened, I will give you rest. The heaviness and the burdens of this life belong to him. Give it to him. Rest from your works. And trust in his works. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and your, your grace to us. You are so, so kind and merciful. I just pray, Lord, that you help us to rest. Help us rest. We are people who toil and strive. And we need your rest. So come to us, Lord, and help us to rest. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this morning... We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, so if Jima, you could open up the containers there. So it, all the stuff is found over there. We have the juice and we have the bread. So Dave and Eliana are going to lead us in the song. And as they're... And Jima, uh, I guess. They're going to do what they're going to do. They have it set up. As the song is playing... Um, feel free to come up and grab the juice and the piece of bread. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we encourage you to join with us this morning in, in the Lord's Supper. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we just politely ask you to refrain um, from the Lord's Supper. And we're just glad you're here. And you can obviously, we're not kicking you out, but uh, this is a, a Christian uh, ordinance. And so... Um, yeah. Uh, as they're playing the song, please take this time to reflect, pray, ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin, to reveal your heart to you, so that as you take the bread and the juice, um, you're doing it with a clear conscience and, uh, and allow the Lord to heal you in that. So, take it away.